0: Take your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to try to move at a brisk pace this morning because we have a lot of ground to cover. Daniel chapter 7, we'll begin in verse 1. I think that we will go ahead and read the chapter in its entirety, uh, making a few comments, but only a limited few along the way. Um, it, It describes itself, it interprets itself. We'll make it through half of it this morning. I was up around 4.30 this morning and walking outside around 5.30 thinking and trying to put this together in a way, and I hope you take that as a sense of how very serious it is to me that we handle this text right today. I hope that it's serious to you too every Sunday, but I hope that uh, this passage and the passages that follow in the weeks ahead uh, will be given uh, all of its uh, due respect and honor as we listen and learn these things. I say that because... Uh, I am uh, concerned that perhaps uh, for some of us, chapters like this in the scriptures are moved to the, that back portion of the stove where things simmer while the stuff that needs our attention sits on the front part of the stove and we work with it. And that's not how we should treat passages like this in the Bible. And I hope to make that case to you today. That's, that's what woke me up at this morning, and uh, that's what we're going to try to passionately look at today. So here is a reading. It says in verse 1 of chapter 7, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed, and he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Now, just pause. The first year of Belshazzar, we have already gone through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, and we have already seen the death of this Belshazzar guy. He does not live past chapter six, past chapter five. He dies there. So we are now going back in time a little bit for Daniel to tell us about a dream and experience he had during Belshazzar's lifetime. Now, Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon, and he was king at the very end, when the the end of the 70-year period of of Israel's captivity under the Babylonian Empire was drawing to a close. Daniel is an old man at this point, and he has a dream. Incidentally, in the book, this is the first time we see Daniel have a dream. We've seen Daniel work with other people's dreams, but here Daniel himself has an experience. Now let's look at what unfolds. Verse 2, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion And had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the earth. And made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast. A second like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it. Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another Like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So that's one, two, three if you're counting. A lion with wings that get taken off, and he stands up like a man. Strange things happen in dreams. Maybe not in your dreams. Strange things happen in dreams. Then a second is like a bear raised up on one side. The third is this this leopard with four heads, however that looks, and and these wings, and and then a fourth. It says, after this, verse 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different. From all the other beasts, which might sound strange. I thought the other beasts sound quite different from anything that I've ever seen. But this is different from those. He doesn't relate it to an animal. And it had ten horns. Verse 8. I was considering the horns. Maybe you were too as I read that. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom... Three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So there were ten, then three of them give way as a new little horn grows where three of them were before. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous or arrogant words. I'm sure Daniel is utterly confused at this point in time. But then the vision isn't over. Verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now that's God. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of His head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before Him. Very similar description to the throne of God as we see in Ezekiel. Now they prophets. A thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then, because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. Remember, there's that little horn that grew up in the midst of the ten original ones. And that little horn is saying, at least to Daniel, arrogant pompous boastful things and now Daniel sees the Ancient of Days seated on his throne ready to judge and he's paying very close attention because he wants to see what the Ancient of Days will do with this little horn saying these arrogant things that's what he's saying here I watched then because of the sound of that of the pompous words which the horn was speaking I watched till the beast was slain its body destroyed and given to the burning flame As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. All right? Verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by, and I asked him the truth of all this. Remember, in his vision, he's seeing something from heaven. So he's still in the vision, and in his dream, in his, in that night, he actually goes up and he asks someone nearby about what he's troubled by. He says, I came near to one of those who stood by, and I asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. That's normally Daniel's job. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. I think we'll stop there this morning because we're only going to go halfway through this, and I think that's a good place. There is more. We will attack it next week. This morning, I want to have four areas of focus here through these first initial verses in Daniel 7. Four areas, and at the end, I want to offer you four reasons that I hope you find compelling for why you should take this seriously. Why this should matter to you. Why this should not be something that sits on the back burner. And already I see, I see the yawning, and I see the stretching, and I, see, I get it, I understand This is important stuff. So, four areas of discussion quickly, and then four reasons why you should not be yawning this one away. Okay? Number one the first focus here is. The glory of this world. How glorious is this world? Now, if you remember back to Daniel chapter 2, you will remember that basically the exact same thing was presented there. Kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, and then God's kingdom would come and it would be an everlasting kingdom. Basically the exact same thing was presented there. And yet in Daniel 2... When Nebuchadnezzar saw this, he saw a glorious statue made of precious metals that was awesome to look at, the conclusion of which when God's kingdom comes, this glorious statue is crushed and crumbles, it crumbles into such fine pieces that there's a wind that comes and blows it entirely away to where there's nothing left. It's just as if it were never there. It's blown from the face of the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar sees these kingdoms that are going to come, these four kingdoms, and he sees something glorious and magnificent to behold. And when God, when heaven describes these three things, in this vision to Daniel, they are four brute beasts. They're animals that are slain. They are four brute beasts. God does not see the glory and the magnificence and the splendor of the kingdoms of this world in the same way that you and I and others are tempted to look at them. He does not see it the same way. Yesterday, I was tired and laying down in the afternoon, and I, you know, I don't even have norm, what was normal TV anymore, like when I was a kid, you know, with the channels and the. Now it's all apps and everything, and it popped up for me to to watch a video that that some algorithm recommended was all of these abandoned cities in China. I thought, that's kind of interesting, so I clicked on this video. This video is showing these huge cities built for millions of people, skyscraper after skyscraper after skyscraper, of real estate developed in China, where in the 90s and the early 2000s, they said millions of people were going to live here, and no one ever lived in any of them. And they are just existing in China, these tall stories. I mean, build, you know, cities for millions of people. And, and I thought the developers building that thing thought they were doing something magnificent. And it looks like some eerie movie that you would watch, you know? It looks like some, some apocalyptic scene. Nobody ever lived there. Such is the glory of man. And we look at the pyramids and we say, that's a great structure, look at that pyramid. And I look at the pyramids and I marvel, I still, how did they build this thing? And I remember the little history book, well this is how they built it. And I think about that and I say, is that really how they built that thing? I mean, I look at it, it's this huge structure and yet I recognize that at one point that pyramid was covered with an alabaster finish that made it gleam in the sunlight like one of the most, <laughs> I mean, it shone, it reflected the light of the sun, on I mean, it was smooth as glass. Parts of it are still like that, although not with the finish anymore. And I look at it now it's just a crumbling pile of rocks. Very high, very tall, but crumbling rocks all the same. And the sphinx, where did his nose go? It's gone. Such is the glory of man. And it'll be the same thing for you and I. If you want, you can drive about 10 minutes that way. had to get my directions right for a second. And hang a left at a flashing light, and you can see the junior high school that I went to. And it's not very glorious anymore. Now, I thought it was pretty cool when I got to go to junior high, and I got to play basketball in that gym, right? And it was this big building compared to what I was used to, and it is not that magnificent. You can't see the elementary school that many of you went to. It's gone, completely gone. The hospital that some of you was born in. Gone. complete. Such is the glory of man. And God sees the glory of man. And he tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. This is dust to dust and ashes to ashes. Yesterday, there was a Cincinnati Red that did something amazing. I'm telling you, he did something amazing. This guy stole. He hit. He hit a, He got a single to get on base and knocked in the go-ahead run. Then he stole second. Then he stole third. Then he stole home. And for those of you that don't follow baseball, that's the stuff that happens in Little League. That doesn't happen in professional baseball. And I looked at it. The, they were describing this, and they said, this hasn't happened for a Red in 104 years. And they gave me the name of the guy that did it. And I, if I remember correctly, his name, was Greasy (laughs) Neal's. 104 years ago, Greasy Neal's did something amazing. I'd never heard of the guy. Such is the glory of man. 104 years from now, if the Lord tarries, some red's going to steal second, third at home. They're going to say, it's the first time since Ellie De La Cruz in 2023, and no one's going to have the slightest idea who that is. What kind of name is Ellie de la Cruz? Like we look and say, Greasy Neels? Are you kidding me? Such is the glory of man. And that is what Daniel sees. What we look at as these great world empires are like brute beasts for the kingdom of God. And there is a ruler behind them. You need to know who the ruler of this world is. The Bible is clear who the ruler of this world is. John 12. I'm going to ask you to turn if you can, if you're any handy at all. With and If you're not good with the Bible and it's just going to be a distraction to turn around, then fine. But I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to read different verses this morning. And I'm going to ask you, if you're somewhat handy, you know, to, to look at the Scriptures yourself as we turn to these. The, lest I become some monotonous voice just kind of you know, blowing stuff out up here. All right? So turn and read. This is John 12, verses 31 and 32. Now, this is Jesus, and he's looking towards the cross, and this is what Jesus says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Listen to me. The cross and the resurrection is not merely about you going to heaven instead of hell, but it is about Jesus and a victory over the ruler of this world, the one we call Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world, and he is crushed as Genesis promised he would be, And the kingdoms of this world which he rules are being judged by God. That is happening at the cross. The kingdoms are being judged. That's what we're looking at in Daniel 7. You have to see this or else the gospel becomes entirely about you, your salvation, your better life, your heaven. In actuality, the Bible says the gospel is entirely about Jesus. It is about him who saved us and invited us into a kingdom that he is bringing. It is about his coming kingship. The world is under the oppression of Satan. Jesus is coming with his kingdom. He has made it possible for you to escape the judgment of this world. He is not coming to shake hands with this world. He's not coming to make peace with this world. He's not coming to set up his own empire alongside China and Russia and the United States and to send some delegate, some embassy. You and I are the ambassadors to this world and we are inviting people to surrender. We are inviting them not to barter with God but to surrender to the king who is coming that they might have a place in his kingdom. 1 John If you can turn to 1 John, that's towards the end of the New Testament. Chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. 1 John, chapter 5. I'll give you a good five count to get there. See, that was the Bible drill gave us ten seconds, so I figure, you know, all of us, you know, adults ought to be able to keep up with the children. 1 John 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God... And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Who is the God of this age? The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true as opposed to the one who rules the world right now who is not truthful. Jesus came so that we may know Him who is true. And we who are in Him in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. There is no bartering here. There is the God of this age who will be judged and destroyed, and there is Jesus who is true, and if we are found to be in Him, if our faith is in Him, if our trust is in Him, then we will know the true God and have eternal life. This is about Jesus. He has come to give us an understanding of the one who is true. There is a consistent presentation of who Satan is in the Old and the New Testament. You don't have to turn to these two. You can pause for a second, but I'll read them to you. Here is how Satan is presented in the Old Testament. Listen carefully. This is Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, that is the angels, those who were created directly by God, not born of a woman, but those who were created directly by God, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. This is happening in heaven. It says, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said, where do you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. This is his domain. This is his kingdom. This is his power. This is his majesty. The earth, the earth the earth. It's the same presentation in the New Testament. Listen to Peter, First Peter chapter five. This is verses eight through eleven. Peter warns: Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. He's not a roaring lion, but he masquerades as a king. He masquerades as the judge. He walks about as a roaring lion, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brother by your brotherhood in the whole world but may the god this is first peter this is peter but may the god of all grace who called us to eternal glory by Christ Jesus the real king After you have suffered a little while, may he perfect you, establish you, strengthen you, and settle you. And then here's the key. Jesus is not like Satan who roams the earth as if he were a lion. Verse 11 says, to Jesus, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Not for a little while. Satan roams the earth pretending to be something that he is not. He is not king of kings and lord of lords. His kingdom is coming to an end. The dominion belongs to Christ forever and ever. You need to know that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 through 6. What is Satan's work? Listen to what Satan's work is. It tells you. Paul tells us if our gospel is veiled so that people don't see it. It's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. That's what Paul says. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. What does Satan do? He would put a veil over the face of people, so that they do not see Jesus for who he is. When they see Jesus, they don't see the glory of Jesus, but they see, like like a groom would through the veil of his bride, a mere shadow of something. Not the splendor of it. For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is all about Jesus. And the God of this age satan does not want people in this world to see the glory of god in the face of jesus old testament prophecy new testament prophecy show the glory of god in jesus so that's part one the glory of this world part two i have to move quickly here the other thing if that's where we start in daniel 7 the 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 destruction and the end of the glory of this world The other thing that we see in these opening verses here is an affirmation of what we saw in chapter 2. In chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had his vision, here God affirms to Daniel at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, the same thing there. Daniel was a young man when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream in chapter 2. Now he is an old man. And at the end of Israel's captivity... As these 70 years of the judgment of God's people is coming to a close, God delivers to Daniel personally an affirmation of the same thing. Now, here are the similarities. Could have done a slide for this. Might have one next week to help us see it clearly. But if you can remember, great. If not, Daniel chapter 2 is not that long. You can look at it this afternoon. But in Daniel chapter 2, the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar began with a golden head. That represented Babylon. Here, it's a lion. A lion. That's the first, the first beast. The lion, incidentally, is representative of Nebuchadnezzar himself. He has his wings plucked off, his glory deprived of him. You might, you might remember in Daniel chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God so that he gave glory and honor to the God of Israel in Daniel chapter 4. So the, the head of gold is parallel to this first beast, this lion here, in Daniel chapter 7 incidentally the great animal that represented babylon on its coinage and on its walls was a lion this would not have been tricky for daniel the second kingdom in the statue it's this it's this breastplate it moves from a gold head to a breastplate of silver And that represented the the second empire. The Babylonian Empire would give way to the empire that followed it. The Persian Empire, often called the Medo-Persian Empire. Here, instead of a silver torso, we see a bear. Notice, it's a bear raised up on one side. That is indicative of the dominance of the Persians in this Medo-Persian alliance. So much so that the Medes are rarely discussed. It's often referred to as the Persian Empire. Power was consolidated there under Cyrus the Great. That's the second kingdom that comes. The third kingdom that comes is Greece and Alexander the Great. You might remember in the statue it moves to a section of bronze. And we're told it's a third kingdom that will come. Here it's represented by a leopard. The leopard has four wings and four heads. Now what is a leopard known for? A leopard is known for being fast. Alexander the Great conquered the entire known world before the age of 30. It says he wept when he conquered the last civilization because there was nowhere else to conquer. He died before he was 30. He left this empire that he had conquered in the blink of an eye to four generals that history remembers. Divided it into four sections. And so we have four heads of this leopard and four wings. And then there is a terrible fourth beast in this passage. You might remember... That in Daniel's statue, it moves towards legs of iron. And we're told this is a fourth kingdom that will come. And the legs are iron, but when you get down to the feet, it's iron mixed with clay. And this is the Roman Empire. The Romans conquered the Greek Empire. Here, it's described as a fourth terrible beast with iron teeth. It shouldn't be hard to see that. If you need further parallelism here, you can remember the fact that at the bottom of that statue were 10 toes, which were described as 10 kings. Here we have 10 horns on this beast, which will be described, as the chapter follows, as 10 kings. So this is a powerful reaffirmation to Daniel that what God gave Nebuchadnezzar was important and was to be remembered and is exactly what would come. Why? Why? Why is this important? Satan may be the ruler of this age, and he may be at work in the kingdoms of this world, but God is sovereign over them. So much so that he tells Daniel hundreds of years before they come to pass exactly what will happen, exactly how it will happen, so that even though Daniel and the Israelites and us have to endure the kingdoms of this world, which do sometimes involve persecution and difficulty and trial, it is not as if there is no God in heaven in charge. It's not as if these are curveballs that he's not expecting, things that he's not ready for, situations that he can't deal with. No, these kingdoms will come, and then they will go. And they will be replaced, if you remember back to Daniel chapter 2, by a stone cut without human hands, not something fashioned by man. Now in Daniel 2, this big boulder, if you will, it falls from heaven. That's important. And it lands at the base of this statue and it's this boulder from heaven that crushes it, completely annihilates it, and then this boulder from heaven becomes a mountain which fills the entire earth. And we're told in Daniel chapter 2, this is the coming kingdom of God which will never end. That's how Nebuchadnezzar sees it in chapter 2. Here, the veil is kind of pulled back and instead we see, as it says here, the Son of Man Verse 13, coming with the clouds of heaven. And He is bringing the kingdom of God. He is the one whose dominion will never end. So we see, this is about Jesus. Second part, the affirmation of Daniel chapter 2. Third part this morning. Notice... There is a God in heaven and He will judge. Verse 9 says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was, was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before Him. A thousand thousands ministered to Him, ministered to him ten thousands time, ten thousand stood before Him. The court was seated, the books were open. At the conclusion of these kingdoms of the world, God will establish His throne and He will judge. It's a bit like the very verse from Daniel 2.28. When he tells Nebuchadnezzar, he looks him straight in the face and he says, All of your guys couldn't do anything with this dream, but let me tell you something. This is Daniel 2.28. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and has made known to the king what will be in latter days. Let me tell you what will happen in latter days. The kingdoms of this earth will come to nothing and God will sit on his throne and he will open the books and he will judge. Verse 10. The books will be opened. Now, if you still have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 20. That ought to be easy to find. It's at the end. Revelation 20. I'll read verse 12 to you. This is not a unique theme to the Old Testament prophet Daniel. This is the gospel. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. John sees the throne of God. It says, and I saw the dead... The small and the great standing before God and books were opened. The same books Daniel sees a thousand, six hundred years before in this vision. And another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. It may not be clear in a tertiary, in a quick reading of this text, but let there be no mistake. What is in these books are all of the deeds of your life and my life. You say, well, that's absurd. Not to God. It would be absurd if I kept a book of all of my deeds. I am a very limited man. I struggle to remember everything I did last week. It is not absurd to an omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God. He has an account, He will hold you to account, you will stand before Him. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And we know that verse, that's a familiar verse. We know that Hebrews tells us we're going to die at some point. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I know what comes next, judgment. But do you know the very next verse in Hebrews 9 is verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 9.27 is not meant to be a terrifying verse. It's meant to be a joyful verse. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that judgment. And because of that, Jesus Christ was appointed to die to bear all of our sin. There is no salvation without looking judgment square in the face. The judgment against our lives which will be contained in these books necessitates our salvation. This is why Jesus died first before he came to rule and to reign. Hebrews 4:12 and 13 says this, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and of the spirit and of the joints and the marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account." I hope if you are sitting here today and you have not come to peace with God through Jesus Christ, that the word of God is like a dagger that cuts deeply into your soul and divides all the nonsense away from the only thing that matters. That one day you will die and you will stand before God and you will give an account for your life. And apart from Christ, you will be naked and exposed before him. All of your sin uncovered. That's not what we do. We cover up our sin. We don't talk about it. We don't show it to anybody. We don't revel in it. The quiet things, the secret things, the shameful things. Not before God. Exposed. That's what's happening in Daniel 7. The books were opened. The next verse in Hebrews 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You're going to stand exposed before God. You need a great high priest to take up your cause. Hold fast your confession. In John 6, verses 28 and 29, People come to Jesus and they say, what should we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and says to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. What shall we do? Should we get baptized so that we can be saved? Do you want us to make a special pilgrimage to Jerusalem a couple times a year so that we can be saved? Jesus, what do we have to do to work the works of it? Do you want us to go fight in a war or climb some holy mountain or say some prayer ten times? What do we have to do so that we can be saved? This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. Faith. Peter summarizes in Acts 4.12 There is salvation Not in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is preaching against Satan, against false gods, against the kings of this world. Only Jesus. The whole plan of God is about him. Not you. Not your country. Not this king or that king. Not that rich man or that rich man. Not this ambition or this passion. No, There is no other name by which we must be saved. Now, there is a liar, loose in the world, a God of this age, who is representing a different truth. That is wrong. Christ is king. And there is no salvation in any other. This is about him. Which brings us to the fourth and final section we see this morning. One like the Son of Man. There's something precious in verse 13 if you understand what you're looking at. This is Daniel 7 verse 13. There is something precious here if you know what you're looking at. It says, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man. The phrase Son of Man shows up 107 times in the Old Testament. It's pretty common. 106 of those 107 times, it is a phrase used to describe a mere mortal man. God will speak to someone like Isaiah or Ezekiel, and He'll say, Write these words, you son of man. And the the phrase son of man stands in contrast to the phrase Son of God, which is also used in the Old Testament. We read one of those from Job just a little bit ago. The sons of God appeared in heaven to stand before the Lord. So, the phrase Son of Man means one born of a man. The phrase Son of God means someone, a being created directly by God. So in the Old Testament, a Son of God is an angel. A Son of Man is... Us, a man, 106 times. And the question is, what about this 107th? Because here's the thing. If you read this and you see what Daniel sees, you are greatly disturbed just as he is because what Daniel sees is a human being walk up to the throne of God and stand face to face with God and be given everlasting power forever and ever so that all people should worship and serve him. And if you're Daniel, and you don't know Jack about Jesus, <laughs> you're hundreds of years before him. And you have a vision where a mere man is standing before the throne of God, and not merely surviving. I mean, we would expect him to be destroyed. I mean, here's a, here's a man. Not merely surviving, but instead being given dominion and glory and honor forever and ever. This is amazing. This phrase, Son of Man, used here is why Jesus takes up the name Son of Man for himself all throughout the New Testament. Over and over again, he calls himself Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. More than 80 times in the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And he is reminding the people of Daniel chapter 7. He is this Son of Man. He is the one who will stand before the Ancient of Days, who will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who will rule forever and ever, whose dominion will never be taken away. He is this singular Son of Man. He's not any of the other Son of Mans in the Old Testament who are all just talking to normal guys. He is this prophetic one. The only man qualified to stand before the throne of God and not be consumed because of his sin. In Luke 9.21, here's what Jesus says. If you have your Bible, please turn to Luke nine. We'll just read verses twenty one through twenty six. Luke nine twenty one. And he strictly warned, this is Jesus, he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man. Daniel 7, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, that is a very different prediction from the one we read in Daniel 7. And he's telling his disciples, I'm telling you something hidden in Daniel 7. The Son of Man must suffer first. Verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Pretty familiar verse. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is it? what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? And when you're asked that question, I want you to imagine what we begin with, the glory of man. I want you to think of Nebuchadnezzar's glory, of Cyrus the Great in his glory, of Alexander the Great in his glory in Greece. I want you to think of the Caesars, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and their great glory in Rome. And I want you to ask yourself this question from the King of Kings, from the Son of Man, when he says, what profit is it to gain all the glory the world has to offer? If you are destroyed or lost yourself. This is the judgment of the world that Jesus came to save us from. This is why he must suffer the cross first. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Of him the son of man will be ashamed. When he comes in his own glory. And his father's angels and of the holy angels. In other words Daniel 7 is going to happen. The Son of Man who Daniel saw coming in the clouds is a real, true event. It will happen. The Son of Man must suffer first, but when He comes again, there will be glory and power and honor. And what will matter at that time is whether or not you are willing to surrender to lose your life for the sake of making peace with Jesus. Four sections then to Daniel 7 this morning. Now, four reasons why you should care about this stuff. Some of you need to hear this. You may not like to hear it. You may not want to hear it. Some of you need to hear this. Number one, God wants you to know these things. Just stare that in the face for a second. God wants you to know these things. The Old Testament has 12 books that we call minor prophets, four books that we call major prophets, telling us prophetic things for a reason. For a reason. The promises of God in these prophecies are reiterated all throughout the narrative of the Old Testament. We've looked at a lot of those. Genesis chapter 3, the promise of Jesus, the promise made to Abraham, over and over and over again. There is an expectation from God that you will know these things. So you should care. These prophecies are reiterated in the Psalms. So it doesn't matter what what kind of book in the Old Testament you go to, you run square into the face of this. The promises of Jesus are foreshadowed even in the law. You can't get away of this. In the New Testament, it comes to an even stronger climax for the Christian. Jesus consistently preached about the coming kingdom of God. Consistently. Sermon after sermon, chapter after chapter, page after page of the Gospels are about the coming kingdom of God. Intensely, he preached these things. The apostles who heard that preaching and then wrote the New Testament as a message to the church after the resurrection of Jesus, they all look toward the coming of Jesus in those New Testament letters. They all speak to the coming of Jesus in those New Testament letters. You should know this stuff. And then, how does the New Testament end? How does it end? With an entire book written to you with the blessing directly from Jesus. Blessed are those who read and understand. This is not a side topic for the church. You can't do that with this. Second reason you should know this. It's not that hard I'm serious. It's not that hard. Some people make it hard because they want to go through and they want to try to imagine and invent all sorts of things that, aren't, that, that are not there. It's not that hard. I, I made a brief list this morning at around 5.30 of complicated things that men and women devote themselves to studying. This is a brief list, okay? Of compli- things that I find fairly... Here we are. Mechanics, engineering, software... Medicine, agriculture, finance, machining, logistics, literature, education, history, etc., etc., etc. All of those things are far more complex than this. This is not hard to understand. The basics of this are simple. For thousands of years, simple people have understood these things and looked toward them. It's not the complexity that gives us pause, it's disinterest. It's laziness, oftentimes, many times, from the people who should be teaching them. The third reason you should know this, because it brings glory to God. This is His story. This is what He is doing. This is what He has done, what He's doing now, and what He is going to do. And He's telling it to you. To ignore this is to make our faith in Christ incredibly small and uncompelling. Small in the sense that, well, it's really about going to heaven and not going to hell. And uncompelling in the sense that it's just our version of the afterlife. It's just the Christian version of, of the Hindu thing and the Muslim thing. This is our version of it. That is small and uncompelling. This is so much more glorious than anything you will find in any other religious idea in all the world. It is incomparable. And how few Christians even know that. Because they don't care to know it. This is not just about what happens to you when you die. This is not about you. This is about the glory of God. He is inviting you to experience His glory. He will have it either way. Your participation is dependent upon what He has done. Last reason. I'm going to close with this. Last reason why you should care about this. Without an understanding of this, your evangelism sounds like moralism or a life insurance policy. Moralism tell me, tell me what I should do and what I shouldn't do. Nobody cares. You try to witness to someone telling them how they should live morally. They don't care. Unless those moral instructions are connected to something bigger than you, nobody cares. And it won't save them anyway. Nobody gets saved because someone gave them a good sense of morality. People get saved when they believe that Jesus is the Son of God who executed the plan of God part of which includes the redemption at the cross, but that is only part of what makes the plan of God great. And if that's all you see and all you say, it makes the gospel incredibly uncompelling. Jesus himself spent much of his teaching in many chapters in the Bible explaining the future fulfillment of God's plan. Why did Jesus waste all that time and energy if all he needed to do was say cross, 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 cross? His apostles in the New Testament, his prophets in the Old Testament, spend many books on the subject. So, lest you think that it is my job as a pastor to simply stand up and preach message after message on how we shouldn't lie, cheat, and steal. Let me correct the misconception. It is my job to do my level best to proclaim the fullness of God's word to you. And back to evangelism. If your evangelism sounds like an invitation to lost people, to become more moral, more blessed, you better hope God gets a more clear message through to them somehow because no one is saved by that. Similarly, if your evangelism sounds a bit like a guy who shows up invited to your home or not, pleading with you to buy some life insurance policy, So that when you die, things are taken care of. Good luck with that presentation. That's not the gospel. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. Preaching a kingdom that was to come. He wasn't selling fire insurance. He preached. I've got four bullets here. I'll just read them to you. He preached. This is what you should think of the world because this is what the world is coming to. He preached, this is how you should think of the kingdom of heaven because it's forever. He preached, this is how you get into the kingdom of heaven. You believe in me. And he preached, this is how citizens of the kingdom of heaven live. It's all about the kingdom. That is why Jesus quotes the prophets and Daniel, by the way. That is why people struggled with his message. That's why people were saved. That's why people are saved. Hear me clearly. Jesus was not, as far as I can tell, in all the New Testament, Jesus was not criticized for preaching morality. If I'm missing a passage, show me. But as far as I can tell, no one ever picked up stones to throw at Jesus because he told them they shouldn't commit adultery. He was not rejected for that. He wasn't rejected because he talked about hell. The Jews understood hell. The Greeks understood the afterlife. They had a sense of it. Jesus was criticized, rejected, and crucified because he called himself the son of man who would usher in God's kingdom, who would rule the world, and who would judge people for all eternity. You go read the book. Read the Bible. When they pick up stones to kill Jesus, it's because he claimed that he was God. When he stands before uh, the priests on the night of his arrest, what's the charge? You have made yourself the Son of God. You have said that you are this Messiah. And when he stands before Pilate, the accusation against him is that he made himself a king. And there was to be no king except for Caesar. Ahead at the time of that fourth beast, Rome. No one blew a fuse because Jesus told them not to lie. No one blew a fuse because Jesus told them that they would go to hell if they were sinners. They already believed that. The Jesus of your gospel and your faith had better be big enough to be compelling because the Jesus of the Bible surely is, surely is, One final word. Mom and dad, if you would make a compelling case to your children for your faith, you better connect it to more than right and wrong behavior. You better make your faith more real to them than a life insurance plan. So they don't go to hell when they die. That's why prophecy is important and that's why it's given to us in full measure, it is given to us. It tells us what's to come of the world. It tells us of the God who will bring it to pass. It tells us of the kingdom that he'll set up forever. Evangelism, in a sense, boils down to this. Who is your king and why should I serve him? Where is your kingdom and why should I want to live there? My king is Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he's done. This is what he will do. My kingdom is not of this world. Here's what it is. Here's when it will come. Here's what it will be like. That's how Jesus preached. You read the gospels. That's how he evangelized. That's how he preached. That's how Peter preached through that little mini sermon in Acts that I read at the start of the service here's what God did, here's what you did to Jesus, here's what it means for you, and here's what you need to believe, because He's coming again with the kingdom, and here's what that's going to mean. You go, and you stand before somebody that you care about, and you tell them, hey, I don't want you to go to hell, believe this. Okay. (laughs) I don't find that very compelling. Why should I take your hell seriously? Why should I take your Savior seriously? Why does that matter? What's going on? What's the, I mean, how is this any different from what the Muslims believe? How is this any different from the reincarnation of Hindus? It's just a repackaged thing. Your gospel had better be about the story, the fullness of the story, the greatness of the story, the greatness of the God who's doing it, and the King of kings whose kingdom will endure forever. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, encouraging and discouraging all the same sometimes to preach. I pray, Father, that all the mixed reactions that there will be some light, some truth that resonates in the hearts of your people. I pray, Father, maybe if nothing else That we won't just wish away the next several weeks through the book of Daniel. That we won't diminish your glory like that. That we won't oversimplify something that you have given us great detail about. That we will care about the things you care about. Father if there's someone here today who doesn't know you I pray that they will see something compelling in Christ who went to the cross so that they need not stand naked and exposed before you in their sin but that they may be covered by a payment for sin made on their behalf and our Savior that you bring them into a right relationship with you that they may know you and have peace with you get a glimpse of the glory of you Thank you for these tithes and offerings, Father. I pray that you'll use them for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.